Bible, doesn't it? Amen. Today we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 58. It says verses 1 through 12, although we will, so, uh, however, we will look at the entire um, chapter, verses 1 through 14. As you turn there, Isaiah chapter 58, I would encourage you to turn in your Bible, physical Bible in your lap. If you do not have that, then, uh, then a Bible that is there in the pew. Um, it's worth noting um, as you navigate your way there in a physical Bible, what comes before, what comes after Isaiah and after and before Isaiah chapter 58. We've been uh, working for the last several years in the fall through a series in Isaiah, and we've noted that through the record of his ministry in Israel, especially in his interactions with Ahaz and Hezekiah, separated by almost 40 years, that Isaiah has, been, has demonstrated the problem of our stubborn and steadfast rebellion, more specifically, the stubborn and steadfast rebellion of God's people known as Israel in the Old Testament. It is worth noting that his diagnosis, this diagnosis of our stubborn and steadfast rebellion, was itself quite offensive and so violently opposed by, of all people, God's people. In fact, tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawn in two by Hezekiah's son Manasseh because of this diagnosis at the heart of his message. His diagnosis, however, uh, wasn't the entirety of his message. It was at the very center of it. And it presented the necessary backdrop to the real substance of his message. The latter half of the book is focused on this substance that we have been calling uh, the double comfort of God's entirely unexpected and so unimaginable plan to address our problem that Isaiah has diagnosed. Our natural expectation when faced with our problem is that a holy God, when seeing the treason of my heart, would simply destroy me. It's reasonable because, in fact, he said that would be the consequence of it. This is assuredly what happens with human kings, even good ones. And so it just seems natural to expect that a holy God of justice would respond in the same way. But in fact, that is not what happens. Rather than destroying, which is the comfort to us of his mercy, he actually works to cultivate in us a heart of obedience, which is the second comfort to us of his grace. And so he makes peace in his world, in the very midst of his enemies. One way to understand the last 10 chapters, 56 through 66, of Isaiah's message of God's double comfort then, is to see them as a sort of sketch of how a holy God, how this holy God will go about establishing his peace upon his earth, as it is in heaven, among his people. 
And looking at it from that vantage point, we have seen in the end that God will establish his peace by his justice. And that God's peace will be the peace of a worldwide people, not just a subset, not just a little people in some small town in the mountains far off somewhere. And that that peace will come by understanding and come by repentance and, as we will see today, come by delight. And as hopefully we will see next week, will come by the practices that are rooted in such understanding and such repentance and in such delight. So read with me Isaiah chapter 58 in its entirety. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me, they, they seek me daily, delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the, of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be, built, shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then, 
you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Brothers and sisters, this is really good news for us, his people. And it's really good news for this valley. So let us go to him and ask that he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Father, we gather in this place at this time, on this day, in this valley, all of which are by your appointment. We gather as those bearing the name of your son, Jesus, the Christ, because we gather as those who have been raised to new life with him. And so, Father, we come to this, your word, in this um, hour, and we pray that as your children, by your spirit, you would speak to us, but more, you would help us hear you. To that end, protect us from error and feast us upon the wonder of your great love for us through your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. My name is Dan Gilchrist. And I am a Sabbatarian. Some of you are thinking to yourself, what is a Sabbatarian? A Sabbatarian is one who seeks to honor and keep the Sabbath slash Lord's Day. We'll come to that in just a moment. You can also be defined as a Sabbatarian is relating to or upholding the observance of the Sabbath. My name is Dan Gilchrist, and I'm a Sabbatarian. Of course, many of you are thinking to yourself, Sabbath is an Old Testament term. We call it the Lord's Day now. But of course, some of you who are aware understand that there was a shift in actual day, Sabbath, Lord's Day. Sabbath being the last day of the week, Lord's Day being the first day of the week. In terms of honoring and keeping the Sabbath, the Sabbath is honored and kept as a day of resting from our labors, the Lord's Day, as a celebration of and a participation in the Lord's first day of His new creation. The principle remains constant, synchronizing ourselves to the rhythms of God's own life and the passions and purposes of God's own work. The principle remains the same. For whose glory will you live? To the extent that I am a follower of Jesus, and I am painfully aware of how far short I fall of that auspicious title, a follower of Jesus. But to the extent that I am a follower of Jesus, I am a Sabbatarian. To the extent that I am growing in Jesus, I am increasingly a Sabbatarian. 
Israel was confused by Isaiah's ministry and message. They, from their understanding, were doing everything that they were required to do by God's law as God's chosen people. In fact, Israel was doing more besides. Israel, so as to avoid the slippery slope, incorporated all other possible options also to make sure that they had all their bases covered. And yet, they were not enjoying the promised peace, what Scripture calls the shalom, in their lives and in their families and in their cities that they expected as a result of such obedience. Perhaps you can relate to their confusion, to their disappointment, to their frustration. Perhaps you have said, perhaps even with your lips or at least in your heart, we obey and obey and obey and nothing comes of it. I got nothing to show for it. Or those of us who are parents, we do everything that we know to do is right. And our kids still wander away. I pray and I pray and I pray. And I still get no answer. And nothing ever changes. Same old boss. Same old spouse. Same old teacher. Same old neighbor. You see... The peace of God comes by our growth to increasingly, in every cubic inch of our lives in this world, to delight in what delights the Father. And to be repulsed by what repulses the Father. This is what Scripture calls righteousness. We increasingly delight in what delights the Father. As we increasingly delight in what delights the Father, we will find ourselves living and loving in this world. Not only in the peace of the Father, but also as agents of that peace. Consider with me what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 58. Cry aloud! The command comes to Isaiah, and don't hold back. It's interesting to note that there's that double command there to Isaiah the messenger, cry aloud and don't hold back. It's interesting to consider why would Isaiah need to be exhorted to not hold back? Lift up your voice like a trumpet to declare what? To declare to my people their transgression, now we know why Isaiah would be tempted to hold back. To the house of Jacob, their sins. The charge here in verse 2, as the ESV reads, is they seek me daily, they delight to know my ways, as if 
they were a nation that did righteousness. The NIV picks up what's going on there more explicitly by translating it, they seem to seek me daily, they seem to delight to know my ways, as though they were a nation that did righteousness, as though they were a nation that did not forsake the judgment of their God. You understand the confusion here. They're going about the things that they believe the Lord has required of them, and yet it is the... It is in the actual doing of those things that they are actually resisting and stiff-arming the Lord their God. They, They seem to seek Him. They seem to delight to know His ways. They seem to themselves to seek Him and to delight to know His ways. And the evidence of this is in their question. What? We fast and we fast and we fast and you don't see it. We humble ourselves and you don't even acknowledge it. And the Lord responds to their objection. In this opening, fasting becomes a um, a uh, a practice that is that is referred to as a part for the whole. Fasting comes to represent their celebration of or their practices of righteousness. And so, in the day of your fast, it's all about your own pleasure. It's all about seeking your own priorities. It's all, about, it's all about doing what you think you're supposed to do over here while forcing your workers to continue working for profit over there. More than that, you fast or only to quarrel. What would they be quarreling about? Well, as good Presbyterians, we know what they'd be quarreling about. Is that the right way to fast? Or not? You're not fasting right. You're not fasting fast enough. You're fasting too slow. And to fight is not just quarrels, but there are, it actually breaks out into fighting and hitting with a wicked fist. There's an image here of a sort of religious gathering for fasting, and it turns into a bar brawl. It, it's, it's an image that leaves you shaking your head, rubbing your eyes. Am I seeing this right? It doesn't fit together. And later on in verse 9, we see that the quarreling is, and the fighting is characterized by, by accusations, pointing of the finger and gossip of speaking wickedness one of another. Rather than the peace they presume themselves to be desiring and pursuing, the people, in fact, are pursuing their own desires and so fragmenting their lives and their world. They show themselves to be a people of profound selfishness, self-servingness, 
a people of worry and fear and anger and competition and accusation and blame shifting and complaining and competition rather than the people of God's peace they'd become in fact enemies of that peace without their even knowing it and that is what is so painful about this passage the people of Israel are genuinely confused because they're genuinely sincere in their pursuit of religious practices to accomplish their own ends. All doing this, all while presuming upon their status as God's chosen and imagining themselves to be super attentive to God's commands. I wish that I could just dismiss this passage as the rhetoric of Old Testament and so irrelevant prophets. But I recognize the dynamics in my heart that are described here. Perhaps you recognize the dynamics in your heart too. Perhaps you recognize the logic of your own disappointments and your own frustrations. You see, Israel had all the appearances of godliness without the substance of godliness. They had their doctrine right without their passions right. They were intent on an outward formality and religious practice without the inward reality of which such practices are to be evidences. Truly, the New Testament Pharisees were heirs of the spirit of Israel we see reflected here in Isaiah 58. As Tim Keller says, the merely religious come to God for what they can get from him. The growing Christian comes to simply behold the glory of God and delight in it, and so is changed by it. <laughs> to use a childish example that I was reminded of earlier this morning even, Israel was coming to church to get the candy, not to get the glory of God himself. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Even while you pursue what you believe is, is super attention to detail in your obedience to me, yet you run from me. Okay? Fair enough. What's the alternative? Track with me, please. The Lord, through Isaiah, asks them this question. Verse 5, 
Is that the kind of fast that I choose? The kind of fast that is characterized by quarreling and fighting and blaming and accusing and gossiping? Is it a, the fast for a day for, for a person to uh, make a show of humbling himself, of making a show of bowing his knee, of making a show of spreading sackcloth and ashes under him? Is that really what you think is acceptable to the Lord? And so the Lord continues. Is it not, is this not the fast that I choose? The way the, the, way the question is posed suggests that the people know. The people know who their God is. They know how he has acted. And they know what is required of them. And then he goes on to, to describe the fast. Remember, fast is a part for the whole, is representing the wholeness of life that is given over to the Lord. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? You might be familiar in your own heart and mind with what's in view there. You ever found yourself so consumed with fear that you just can't act? You can't speak to that person or you can't love that person, whatever it is, you're so consumed in fear. That's loose the bonds of wickedness. Those, those internal dynamics that cause you to shrink. And to undo the straps of the yoke, the yoke being that the, um, that heavy bar that rests upon your shoulder by which you are controlled undo the straps of the yoke. They go on to continue, they continue in verse 7, oh, excuse me, in, the, in verse 6, the, to let the oppressed go free. He continues, what does that all look like? Sharing bread with the hungry. Bringing the homeless poor into your house, clothing the naked, not hiding yourself from your own flesh. Verse 7, brothers and sisters, could be written right here today in Walker County, Georgia. It could be written right here today in Flintstone without the least bit of alteration. Because as we learn in Deuteronomy, the poor we always have with us. That is true among us. It is true around us. The fast that the Lord chooses is characterized by sharing bread with the hungry, clothing the naked, giving drink to the thirsty. Of course, we hear, lest we too quickly dismiss this as Old Testament rhetoric of an old and outdated prophet, Jesus himself picks up these very themes and he picks them up in a really poignant and painful way in Matthew chapter 25. When he says on that last day, this is what I'm looking for. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. 
and you came to me. You see, what Isaiah is identifying here in these verses is not distinctive or limited to the Old Testament. Please understand that. It is rather distinctive and indicative of what delights the Father. You want to know what gets your Father's heart beating? This is what gets your Father's heart beating, so to speak. This is what delights the Father. The Father's delight manifests in care for the poor and the vulnerable and the abandoned. This is what righteousness looks like. This, brothers and sisters, is why we have the poor always with us and among us, so that we may actually participate with the Father in the sort of love that delights the Father. This is what friends and lovers do. They invite others to participate with them in the things that they love. To delight with them in the things that they delight in. Isaiah's charge is this. If it's true that you delight and rest and rejoice in being God's chosen, then it will manifest in lives that delight In what delights the Father, this is the logic of biblical righteousness. This is what we read this morning in 1 John, the end of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. When we delight to delight in what the, father's, what the Father delights in, when we delight in what delights the Father, we find ourselves entering into the joys and the celebrations of the Father's peace and participating with Him in the cultivation of that peace, of that shalom. Look, verses 8 to 9. Then... Shall your light break forth like the dawn. Then your healing shall spring up speedily. Then your righteousness shall go before you. Then the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Then you shall cry and he will say, here I am. Brothers and sisters, the if-then construction here is a matter of design. It's not a matter of you meeting conditions. It's a matter of the Lord saying, this is how I've designed my world. This is how I've designed you, my redeemed ones, my chosen ones, the ones in whom I delight. Then your voice shall be heard. He continues in the second part of verse 10. Then your light shall rise in the darkness. Then your gloom shall be as noonday. 
The Lord will guide you continually. Then your desire in scorched places will be satisfied. And your bones will be so strong. Have you ever felt yourself to be bone weary? Brothers and sisters, that is what is in view here. When you delight in what delights the Father, you see, it becomes, well, food for your soul, strength for your body. You shall be like a watered garden, your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt shall raise up foundations of many generations. It's really fascinating that verse 12, ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. That which had been built and now destroyed will be built again. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Our God is the God not only of today and tomorrow, but of all your pasts. Some of you, under, underneath the rubric of Bonds of wickedness are oppressed with a yoke of regret for things said or not said, things done or not done in days or weeks or years past. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what Isaiah is saying here? That which was destroyed by your sin and your transgression, that which was eroded and that which collapsed because of your sin and your rebellion, that will be rebuilt. That will be restored. The foundations of many generations will be rebuilt and you shall be called the repairer of the breach. All your days past and all your days future will know the peace of God. Now this is pure speculation on my point, on my part, obviously, because I've never been to the end of time and to the consummation of all things. But I suspect that part of our great Joy as we stand together shoulder to shoulder before the throne of the King will be rejoicing in the ancient ruins that He has rebuilt. We will be able to behold them in the same way that we behold His scars and say that is what He redeemed by the power of His love. You understand what Isaiah is saying here. His message to Ahaz, his message to Hezekiah was exactly the same message of the apostles in the New Testament. And that is, your God reigns. Take it to the bank. You can count on it. He reigns in military practicality. He will defend you from Sennacherib. He will defend your cities. He will cause them to flourish because our God reigns. The apostles' proclamation of it 
was simply this, Jesus is Lord. Perpetually present tense. The way the structure of the passage goes is that the Sabbath then is presented to us as a sort of test case. All of those things loosing the bonds of wickedness, undoing the straps, or letting the oppressed go free, breaking the yoke, sharing bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into your house, seeing the naked and covering him, and not, let, not hiding yourself from your own flesh. All of those things are gathered up. And we have the opportunity to practice them together on the Sabbath. Because do you understand what I'm saying here? Brothers and sisters, the Sabbath is not about all those things that you can't do. The Sabbath is that because you are the redeemed of the God of Israel, you actually get to practice the breaking in of that great coming kingdom. If you turn your foot back from doing your pleasure on my holy day and actually delight in the Sabbath as I delight in the Sabbath. If you honor it, ceasing from your own ways, ceasing from seeking your own pleasure, ceasing from lying about and talking idly, then you shall delight to know the flourishing shalom of your God. Is that not what we hunger and thirst for? Brothers and sisters, that's what the Sabbath is. That's what the Lord's Day is. We should rejoice that we're Sabbatarian. Because brothers and sisters, the Sabbath is just the anteroom of the kingdom. Just behind that door, right there, behind that door, right there, the king waits to enter and to welcome us in. That's what the Sabbath Lord's Day is. For us to delight together in what delights the Father. When we delight in what delights the Father, His rest and in His work, we find ourselves enjoying and participating together and cultivating together the peace that surpasses understanding, that surpasses our understanding and surpasses certainly the understanding of the valley around us. The Sabbath, brothers and sisters, is about whose glory and for whose glory are we going to live? Will we delight to do our pleasure or will we delight to do that which delights the Father? You see, peace comes by delighting in what delight in delighting in what delights the Father. Or to summarize Jesus, if we love Jesus as Jesus loves the Father, we will delight to do what delights the Father. If we claim to be walking with Jesus and growing in Jesus, what delights the Father and the Son will increasingly be that which delights us. If we, 
If what delights us is not increasingly and conspicuously to the watching world what the Father has revealed delights him, then we have good reason to wonder if we are truly desiring the Father's glory or if we are rather not desiring our own glory. In short, when we delight to do what delights the Father, we become a people of shalom, a people of Sabbath. The delight of the Father to delight in us as his chosen in Christ, you see, makes us Sabbatarians. This is what our world and us together with it aches for and relentlessly pursues, the peace of the Father in which he delights. The peace of the Father in our marriages, in our families, in our congregation, in our community, in our nation, and in our world. You see, what's so strange about this is that our visions of peace usually center around what delights us. But the delight of the Father is that his vision of peace centers around what delights him. And what delights him and what pleases him is to lay upon Christ that which keeps us from the Father. That's who he is. We were made to delight in God and in what delights him. And if that's the case, the single most important thing we could do to cultivate this peace in our lives and in the lives of those around us is to gather together in his presence at his table to taste and see and savor the sweetness of that which most delights him, the loving sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Because that's what makes us new. It's what makes us different. It's what makes us distinctive. It's what cultivates his peace. For as we are rooted in Jesus, as we taste and see and savor the delight of our Father's love for us in Jesus, as we grow in Jesus, as we walk with Jesus, as we follow Jesus, we will be increasingly marked by the passions and the pursuits of Jesus. And so just like Jesus, we will delight to do that which delights the Father. So, Father, we come as those who, like Israel, are prone to wander. Oh, Lord, we know it. Prone to pursue our own pleasures and our own delights. And so we come marveling that you are a God who delights to call us and remake us by your Son, Jesus Christ, so that you may welcome us and rejoice with us in your presence. Father, we pray that you would so stun us by that, that we would become increasingly characterized by and captivated by that which delights your heart indeed. With the glory of your son's love for us, Jesus, for it's in his name we pray.
Amen.